Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. I'm Nate Aiken, one of the founders of Baptist 21. Uh, as Jed mentioned, this is our 15th year doing this. Uh, a lot has changed in that 15 years. One of the things that didn't change, year one and year 15 was a Chick-fil-A sandwich. But what did change is the price of that Chick-fil-A sandwich significantly uh, over 15 years. Uh, but we have some familiar panelists. We have some new panelists. Let me introduce them quickly uh, and we'll jump in. So we have right next to me, Jared Stevens on the Sexual Abuse Task Force, also the pastor of Champion Forest in Houston, Texas. Uh, next Next to him, Juan Sanchez, also in Texas, in Austin at High Point. Uh, next to him, J.D. Greer, the, the bishop of the Summit Churches in Raleigh-Durham. Um, Summit Church has 14 churches in the Pillar Network. So. It, yeah, <laughs> if they were actually churches, you'd have 140 messengers this year. So, um, I, Don't cheer too loudly. I do not want to get in a war of words with J.D. Greer. So... <laughs> Uh, next to him is my dad, Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary, on our first panel years ago at Sojourn Church uh, in Louisville. And then next to him, Dr. Al Moeller, also on that original uh, panel and from Southern Seminary. And guys, thanks so much. We got a ton to cover. We obviously got to get back in the room. Um, and so as, as best as possible, we want to be you know, pointed in our answers uh, as best as possible, though, because some of these are going to be pretty complicated questions. And so I want to jump in. You know, to some degree, Southern Baptists have some very similar thoughts on a lot of these issues, uh, even more similar than what social media would want you to, to think. Uh, but again, a conversation around these is good and necessary. So just kind of want to jump in and want to jump in right at the beginning with complementarianism, confessionalism, friendly cooperation, Saddleback, the Sanchez Law law Firm uh, Amendment, and, and talk through that. So Juan, I'm going to start with you. The Saddleback decision this afternoon is, is, is an important one. It's also one that you know, we need to have a bit of anguish as we think about disfellowshipping somebody from our uh, Convention of Churches. So how are you sort of thinking through that? Obviously, them and Fern Creek in this, this idea that we've deemed them in, in unfriendly cooperation with the convention. How are you thinking through all that? How, how, how are you kind of approaching the convention this afternoon? Sure, as a pastor, um, you know, we do, you know, Dr. Mulder was very gracious to us in coming up with the language of theological triage. It's very real, and complementarianism is a secondary issue, but secondary issues are not unimportant issues. Yeah. And for me personally, the concerning conviction that I have is that the, the question of the, the pastor and the role of women, it's a biblical issue, a textual issue. It is an interpretive issue, but really, I think it boils down to it's a biblical authority issue. Hmm. And so when uh, Dr. Schreiner last night of the Nine Marks at Nine panel said, the biblical text is pretty clear throughout. And so when we are unwilling to accept what scripture says about uh, a significant matter, like the role of women in the church, uh, qualified pastors, um, that's an important issue that if we begin to fudge around those corners there, that biblical authority issue then will open the door for us to fudge on other issues as well. And that's my primary concern. I'm happy for us to, to, to debate about 
you know, secondary issues, tertiary issues, the millennium, tribulation, how often do we have the Lord's Supper? Those are all fine conversations to have, but I think this is an important secondary issue that if we neglect to address this issue, I think it opens the door for us toward theological decline. Dad, how would you kind of follow up? How are you approaching this afternoon? So it'll be at 345 where we'll hear the appeals uh, if, as long as we're on time. How are you approaching that? Well, I would affirm everything Juan just said. Um, with much heartache and sorrow, I do believe that Saddleback is no longer in uh, friendly alignment with the SBC, and uh, I will vote to uh, sustain the judgment of the credentials committee and the executive committee. Juan talked about second tier issues, and I think this is exactly where that falls. We're not questioning whether or not someone is a Christian. That's a first tier issue, as uh, Al has made very clear. Second tier issues are what are necessary for us to work cooperatively together. Just like I could not plant churches with a Presbyterian brother who I would love dearly and appreciate so much their advocacy for the gospel, I don't believe in baptizing babies. I could not also uh, help plant churches where women serve as pastor elder overseers uh, because I just cannot do that. I think it's that crucial and that clear uh, of a biblical issue. Mm. And so for me, uh, we didn't leave Saddleback. Mm. Saddleback has left us. That's helpful. With all these questions, I want anybody to follow up as, as you know, you would like. So JD or Dr. Muller, would you guys want to say anything to that before we kind of move on from Saddleback? No, I actually find myself in, in full agreement with what Juan and, and Danny both said. I mean, you've got, you've, you know, I don't think anybody here is talking about the salvation issues. We recognize that. Um, but we also recognize the cohesion of the church requires certain things. And, and this is in that category. Uh, you got a third category, which is the application of those doctrines in the life of the local church. And I think, you know, trying to discern um, the basis of our unity as Southern Baptists, that's an important thing of knowing, you know, the emphasis to put on what syllable in all of those, you know, different categories. Uh, you know, Baptists have, have historically done, uh, you know, for all of our, our faults and our, our stumbles, we've done a, a pretty decent job of kind of identifying that through line that says we're not talking about uniformity um, down to the nth degree of either the fine toothness of the doctrine or the application of it. Um, but we're also uh, not willing to go to the other side and say these words don't mean anything. So as long as you just nod your head at it and, you know, do a little courtesy bow, then, hey, you can do whatever you want to, and, and, and nobody's really going to think anything. The nature of confessionalism is that we do want to be identified with one another, that we can at least be in a room and say, um, I'm fine planting churches with that guy, uh, that church. Even if, even if I wouldn't do it exactly the same, um, then, you know, I mean, you, they can look at me and I can look at him. First joke, you know, notwithstanding, and say, man, I love being a, a church planning partner um, with Nate, and I think he does with me as well. So. Yeah. Amen. Dr. Moeller? Yeah, if I may, I'd like to step back just a moment, just play the role of historical theologian for a moment. The reason I wrote that article in Theological Triage, which I'm honored you guys have referenced, is to make the point that you've got to know what's a first and what's a second, what's a third order issue. But it's also to make the point that Protestant denominations— are by nature second-order institutions. That's why we are not Presbyterians. There was a book published by uh, what is now Lifeway, the Baptist Sunday School Board, back in the late 1890s that was entitled Baptist Why and Why Not? And the chapters were Why Not Presbyterian, Why Not Episcopalian? 
Yeah. Not a whole lot of uh, public relations going on there, but some theological clarity. You know, Baptists, why and why not you? And um, but the the point was that we didn't we didn't say the Anglicans are not Christians. We just said we don't believe that the bishop is a separate office than the local church pastor. We 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 said we don't we believe that our Presbyterian. I mean, if you know the friendships that existed among pastors in the 19th century, the Baptists and the Presbyterians were hanging around. But they weren't both baptizing babies. And, and so you just understand the second, we shouldn't be scared off by saying this is a second order issue. The Southern Baptist Convention, in its declaration of existence, declared itself a second order institution. Now, one other note needs to be made, and that is that we're not in the 19th century, and theological liberalism occurred between the middle of the 19th century and now. And so there are now first order issues that separate us from some Presbyterians and some Methodists. And by the way, from some who call themselves Baptists. Yeah. And so distinguishing all that is actually just a matter of grown-up denominational responsibility. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Mm. I'm going to come right back to you. Dad, you have something to say? I just want to say one thing. I do think that the Resolution Committee has put together a superb resolution on women and uh, their role in the church and affirms so much of what all of us on this panel believe that women can do, are gifted to do, are so valuable to do, including full participants in the fulfilling of the Great Commission. And so when that particular resolution comes up, uh, I believe our convention will overwhelmingly affirm it. And I think it makes a very good positive statement, but at the same time recognizing that God has reserved the office of the elder, the overseer, the pastor, for God-called and scripturally qualified men. That was not our decision that was God's decision. Nate, Dr. Moeller, I'm going to come. Did you have some? I'm going to come back. You know. I was just going to say, you know, I think that in our, our discussions here, man, I know it's, this is a very timely discussion and it's an important one. Um, but just to maybe put an exclamation point on that, um, some of the things that gets lost in here is, I mean, we, um, it would be tragic. I, I would almost say, I need to think about this, but I would almost say as tragic as, yeah, I would say this without any hesitation. As tragic as getting complementarian wrong and going egalitarian would be the discouragement of our sisters in Christ in a way that does not recognize the role, the dignity, the calling, and the gifting they have in the body of Christ. Um, and there's a real danger here just in the way we have these conversations of a tone deafness toward them. I don't claim to represent them. They don't all talk to me, um, but I know um, that there's a lot of discouragement there because they've been turned into a battleground. And these women are, are not seeking to take over the convention. They're not trying to become pastors of our churches, um, but they are, are gifted as teachers. They're gifted in leadership. They're gifted in mercy and all these different things. And uh, they're, they're kind of watching this saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't be having the conversation. I'm saying that there's another side of it. And there's even parts of this conversation that are disturbing um, you know, with the whole, <laughs> we're focusing on the you know, um, qualified men part. And we put the men part in there, but then there's just the whole qualified part of like, you know, it says not divisive, not arrogant, sober-minded. And if I'm listening to um, the ring leaders of the discussion, they are neither sober-minded, humble, you know, or any of the, uh, or, or not divisive. And so I think it's an important reminder and I appreciate you giving it. So one of the things that's been kind of picked up in this whole discussion with Saddleback, and, and there's even word that some of the former SBC presidents will make a motion to, to think through what does closely identifies and friendly cooperation mean. Uh, you know, as far back, so we have kind of, it feels like to me in the SBC, we have a group that says we're non-credal 
And then we've got a group that says we're full-blown confessional. Like, and to the non-credal guys, in 1925, we adopted a statement of faith, and that, that couldn't have meant nothing. It meant something for the churches. At the same time, not until 2015 do we have the language of closely identifies, and it doesn't say affirm, it says closely identifies. So Dr. Moeller, how do we think, as a denomination that has that broad of a spectrum of looking at this Article 3, how are we to think through uh, what is going on with closely identifies with our statement of faith and friendly cooperation? Yeah, well, first of all, if you go back to 1845, the convention did not need to assume a creed because the churches, almost all of them, hard to come up with an exception, were bound by associational uh, commitments and confessions. And, and honestly, in 1845, the association was more powerful than the national convention. That was the bigger question. And the, the two things the SBC was founded to do in 1845 was send international missionaries and help plant churches on the frontier. And by the way, that meant west of Tuscaloosa. <laughs> and so as you look at this, you recognize that it was just, you know, what, what do we have to do to do this? Well, we're all parts of these associations. We know where we stand theologically, so we don't have to articulate that. If you look at the history of creeds and confessions, or even bylaws in some cases, they're shortcuts. In 325, the, the Council of Nicaea, the, they adopted the Nicene Creed because the orthodoxy of the church, the credibility of the gospel was on the line over the question of the status and the identity of the son. And one of the reasons why they adopted the creed is because it can't have the whole debate every year or you'll never get to preaching the gospel or taking it anywhere or raising your children for that matter. And so they're shorthands, they're, they're shortcuts. And uh, so every, every creed or confession is a short, concise summary that establishes what Baptists often refer to as, as a rule. So in other words, we kind of made everything a bylaw. It's a rule. And, and so that's how you know you're inside or out. Uh, I think that the longer, and by the way, you look at the SBC, I'm trying to make this fast. You go from 1845 to the present. We become more confessional over time. And I'm a confessionalist, so I don't apologize for that. I think it's inevitable because otherwise... We can't start every SBC by saying, now, do we believe in the Trinity? Let's just double check this. You know, do we believe that the Son and the Father are, are, are substantial, you know, co-eternal? We just can't go. So in other words, we have to start with an enormous amount of theological consensus or we can't actually do anything. The question is always what level of theological consensus is absolutely requisite. And that also gets to another thing, which is kind of central to how I lay these things out. You have a tension between what can be assumed and what must be articulated. And, and so you reach a point where you say, okay, that has to be articulated. 1925, 1963, you know, 2000. Okay, we got to articulate these things. We didn't have to say, by the way, that biological males can't be girls right. in 1963. But that's going to be a part of uh, ongoing, you know, confessional reality. It is it, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message gives us a confessional basis to say, no, that's the, the scripture's clear about that. So I'm trying to make this short. It's just to say that, I think over time, inevitably, the SBC will be more confessional, not because of the persuasiveness of my arguments, but because the external world is putting pressure on us in which we're going to have to say every once in a while, okay, what is it that we really have to hold in common if we're going to work, to, if we're going to work together? And we are not saying that people who are outside that circle are not Christians. We're just saying this is right now a shorthand for what it takes for us to do foreign missions, plant churches and, and have theological seminaries together. I will actually stop. No, it's helpful. And I, and I want others to respond. I, I, may, I may ask it like this, and Juan, I'll, I'll come to you. And I don't, I don't want to get to the kind of the merit yet of 
the um, law or Sanchez uh, amendment. I want to talk about that in a minute, but just the idea that we have in the Constitution closely identifies with our statement of faith. Do we even need the examples uh, that, ha- that we put in there? So do we even need to put more examples in Article 3 if we already have in there that the churches must closely identify with our statement of faith? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not a parliamentarian. I don't know. You know, th- we have to have grace with one another uh, about processes, how we get to those processes, how we define those things. I think the fact that we're having these conversations to me says we need to clarify a few things. Um, I don't think we should be changing statements of faith very often, but I think the Constitution allows us to clarify statements in between the times of that necessity. So that's why I would argue uh, that it, it, it helps clarify a few things, which evidently one through five of Article Three, Paragraph One, evidently Southern Baptists have thought was necessary up to this point. So I think it helps us to Dr. Mulder's point in a shorthand say, look, we can't talk about everything, but at least it means this for us. Does that mean, though, like if we're saying, hey, you have to be closely identified, but you really have to affirm these four. Does that in some way then put a cloud or muddy up Article 3.1 that says closely identifies? I, I personally don't see it that way. The way that I see it, for example, when we talk about the law amendment and I prefer, you know, we. We give credit where credit is due because Mike has done a lot of hard work. But um, to me, the language that Mike and I have agreed to, I think simply clarifies what is in disagreement in some quarters among Southern Baptists. And that's the original intention of the Baptist faith and message going all the way back to 1925. And so the proposal that, that we're making is just simply, hey, we're not, we're not saying you got to believe this instead of that. We're saying Look, when we look at Article 6 on the church, what it means that pastors are to be qualified by Scripture and only men, this is what it means. So if the, if the, if the convention affirms that, then it's clear. Okay, then we understand that's what this means. Uh, Jared, I want to come to you. So the, the former SBC presidents are talking about and feeling like there is some muddiness in what closely identifies means for friendly cooperation. Uh, do you think that sort of motion is necessary, helpful? How, how are you kind of processing confessionalism, complementarianism, and cooperation? Yeah, totally, totally sympathetic to uh, what is being set up here. And I don't think that um, there are very many people, I don't know this to be true, this is anecdotal, just my, my taking the temperature of the Southern Baptist Convention in the circles that I run around. I don't think anybody that I know in my circles disagrees with this amendment or complementarianism or the fact that the elder bishop or overseer should be male. I think uh, the uh, concern is a little bit about what JD mentioned, the tone of how we communicate this and have uh, these conversations. And then uh, it's a nomenclature issue. What do you do about churches when you say elder bishop, pastor, what do you do about churches that are, uh, you know, have a, have a children's pastor that's a woman, or they call their uh, missions pastor, that's, uh, their, their uh, missions pastor uh, that's a woman, a pastor. What do you do about that right there? Because I think there's a lot of churches in our Southern Baptist Convention that are doing that, and what are we communicating when we say this? J.D., I want to ask you anything you want to follow up with here. I'm going to come back to, to, to a point that Jarrett made in just a moment with another question. But I want to ask one question, but feel free to talk about any of this as well. Some are accusing that 
removing a church like Saddleback or Fern Creek, who has a female pastor, is violating local church autonomy. Uh, when you hear a sentiment like that, what do you think? Well, I mean, on on the surface, no, that's not because we also have the right to be able to define the parameters of our cooperation. And so, I mean, the easiest way to understand this is to take it out to an issue that's, you know, there's more agreement on justification by faith. You know, it's not violating the church's autonomy, saying if you're preaching baptismal regeneration, that you probably, this is not a, a good fellowship for you to belong in. That's, that seems to me to be pretty self-evident. Um, you know, the question really comes back to one of um, latitude. Um, you know, I, I mean, just be really clear. I, I, I think our, our, our um, Baptist Faith and Message 2000 um, does not need to be changed. I know it's not inspired by, you know, the Holy Spirit. It was authored by Al, um, which is different. Um, but <laughs> um, but I believe it represents a consensus of what we believe. And um, I believe it allows latitude where it needs to. But, I mean, what's also kind of come up in this is we recognize that there's even latitude within the, you know, the, the doctrines that are there, realizing that there are, the words closely identified were not just pulled out of a hat. Those are intentional words. And so to use the very now cliche example of communion, there are a number of Baptist churches that while they would believe what the Baptist faith and message says about the proper order, that it's for you know, baptized believers, they choose to recognize an irregular baptism, if you will, um, that we would say in some ways is not a baptism at all um, because it's, you know, baptized as an infant or it's sprinkling. And, and we say, but, you know, in, in the order of things, I, I, that's not something that we're going to do is forbid, you know, uh, a visiting Presbyterian from taking that. There are other Baptists who would say, no, that's, a, that's something, you know, but nobody's really talking about disfellowshipping there. So the question is, within that, when you're closely identified, um, what is it, you know, what, what are those issues that you would say, okay, that's an issue that we really do need to draw a line and say, I, I, I don't think you belong here. Um, and is it an issue where we say, yeah, I understand that. Um, if you can closely identify, and, and just for full disclosure, some of the churches in that category I describe with communion. Um, my mother and father-in-law who are Presbyterian, when they come, I do not, you know, put my hand in front of them and say, no, you know, I, it, it, um, you know it's, we, there are others that are like that on issues like this. And so there are some issues related um, to even the women's issue that we, we would have to ask, where is that in the latitude if there's an affirmation of complementarianism, what's the latitude and application? You want me to talk to them about baptism? I'm happy to do that, though. So I would love to hear that conversation, okay? Because it it's to a point now that Thanksgiving dinner has been ruined, okay, in my, for, a, for a long time. And hey, let me add this uh, to what was said a moment ago. Um, I do believe that churches that apply the title pastor to a woman as a preschool, children's, mission, youth, you take it. I think they're using that word inappropriately. Do I then want to run out after this convention and disfellowship all of them? No, I don't. What I do want to do is continue to teach well and clear what the Bible says about the pastor, the elder, the overseer, and try to give them time. Uh, I, I would remind all of us, Paul took time uh, in exercising church discipline. Our Lord says if someone's in a sin, go to them once, twice, third time, and so on. So I would want to try to have a season of teaching, uh, of encouraging, and try to help them understand why that's just not the way the Bible uses that word. And what we all want to do is line up 
in all of our doctrines and all of our terminology as closely to scripture as we possibly can. And I would try to bring them along in that kind of a way. Now, again, uh, if someone is kind of adamant and in your face about it, well, then that may require a different kind of conversation and we could have that conversation. But I'd much rather be pastoral in all of this um, because I just think that's the right thing to do and the right way to do it. Yeah, and yeah, I would just say, um, Danny, I disagree with you. I, I, I do think that there is, as we get into this, we understand, um, yeah, there, there are some mistakes of nomenclature, and those are different than wholesale rejections of the doctrine um, of complementarianism. And yes, that requires some discernment. And it's, um, then there's, you know, I've heard people say in this discussion that, well, it's not enough that the children's pastor not be called pastor if there's a staff member that's doing pastor-like things, which, which that sounds great until we appoint the group that's going to determine what those things are. Um, I mean, just to be very clear, um, you know, I believe pastor, elder, overseer, those are all the same office. I think it's an office in scripture. I don't think there's a distinction. I don't think pastoring's a gift. It's an office. So, you know, I understand that. Um, but, you know, how we apply that at our church, we don't have any pastors that are women. Um, we do have a children's director who is a woman. She oversees male volunteers. I know some faithful brothers that would say that's actually a violation of 1 Timothy 2 because she's giving direction uh, to them. We don't see it because she's under the direction of elders, and we don't see that as a— And so, but is, is that—who gets to decide that? Um, you know, if you have—you've got some different scenarios. I, I actually think back around, you know, several years ago when— um, this is not as relevant anymore, um, but it used to be. The Baptist church I grew up in, deacons were all had to be men, right? I mean, it had to be men, the Baptist church I grew up in, and that's because deacons were basically elders. And you know, now we recognize, and many most Baptists recognize, deacons are not elders, and deacons are servants, and most Baptists, many Baptists would say it's okay for men and women. I look back on the little church I grew up in, though, and say, I say their instinct was right. They had the office wrong, but the instinct was right. The instinct was complementarianism. The nomenclature was off. I, well, there's some parallels to what we're going through now. I'm like, if there's, you know, we're looking at what is, what is the S, what is closely identified? And complementarianism, what does that mean? And then there is the latitude of how that's applied. There's room to make mistakes. And then there's the question of, that's where autonomy of the church does actually come into play. Is I think you are saying, we, we are united by this confession, but we are allowing um, some autonomy and how this is applied and standing together in fellowship, even when we don't line up, uh, jot and tittle on everything. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to be really quick here. So number one, I support the law amendment. I support the Juan Sanchez uh, uh, substitution, which, which is, is, has been agreed to. And it's because I go back to the fact, I, I think this comes down to, and so point two would be, the Southern Baptist Convention is not an investigatory body. We are also not a body that can tolerate endless debates about membership issues. That's why we have to have shortcuts. And that, uh, otherwise, in fact, this meeting, we already face the fact we don't have enough time to deal with the issues we've already accepted to deal with. The last thing the SBC can do right now is say, we're going to come up with 12 new things and we're going to debate all of a sudden. Um, but the other thing is that our polity says that any messenger at any time may raise any complaint against any messenger elected by any other church for any reason. And that's why you have to have a committee to say, well, that's not an issue. This is. We also, by the way, over the course of the last three or four years have had complaints made against churches that evidently don't know they're Southern Baptists and don't intend to be. So, you know, at least let's focus on the churches that intend to be Southern Baptists. 
And so I will say that I think the use of the word pastor is wrong. I also think it will take time to work that through. But the other thing I want to raise is that in all, in all denominations, even the ones that think they're the most strictly confessional, okay, there's the category that you find in the Westminster tradition, let's just say Presbyterian. In the Westminster tradition, you find the language of grievous offense. So the fact that JD preaches in blue jeans is an offense to me. Okay? It is not grievous. Yeah. And, and it should be of absolutely no consequence to the Southern Baptist Convention. The fact that someone up here may be a traducianist versus a creationist on the doctrine of the origin of the soul, I think it's impossible for that to become a grievous offense to the Southern Baptist Convention, 99.99% of whom neither know nor care about the theological debate. But let's be honest, there are issues that maybe our founders couldn't even envision in which you now have the risk of grievous offense that threatens the cooperation of the SBC. One of the reasons I support that amendment is because I don't think the SBC every year can either itself or through its credentials committee say, we've got to bring, we're going we're to bring 18 cases or eight cases to the floor of the SBC to be adjudicated. That just will not happen. And so I also want to say that I will go on the record. I did not like the idea of a task force. By the way, I think if the SBC dies soon, it may die of task forces, just in the sense, and I'm totally supportive of the work of your, your task force. I'm just saying you can't, task forces are supposed to be, you know, limited and, and denomination that needs abundant numbers of them is in trouble, but maybe we need them right now. We need the sex abuse task force. Yes. Maybe we also need this other task force. I didn't like the idea. I will publicly support it. So long as it's considering that language of closely identifies, because that is not creedal language. I have no investment in that language. If there's better language or a better way, I think it would be great for a task force to find it. I do not believe it is opportune to throw the confession of faith in the midst of that, because that is a fatal level of tension for the SBC. We dare not risk. That's good. That's helpful. I mean, part of the reason, you know, we've talked about, uh, some people have talked about a committee like that, Clint Presley, and then potentially the SBC presidents, is because exactly what you said is that it does seem like the credentials committee needs better marching orders. It doesn't necessarily seem like they had changed the Constitution. If there's a better language, we should all encourage its adoption. If there's a better structure, I think the SBC will, in relief, affirm a better structure. (laughs) One of the reasons that I'm actually not... No offense. In, ter- in, um, in support of the amendments or even one's more positive, you know, smiley version of it um, is just the one feel to it. I love it. I'm just trying to be like you. I, I love it. It's just like I feel charmed when he says it. And I'm like, I want to vote for that. What is it? Um, but is, um, you know, I, I, I kind of look at it and I say, yes, this is a difficult question, but we have a number of churches that are going to be brought forward that we all kind of are reading the tea leaves and recognizing are going to, their appeals are not going to be upheld. And I, I say, well, the BFNM is actually working like it's supposed to, so why do we need an amendment to, um, to add to that? Um, because because I, I also think we've got the question now of, of what endless amendments that we have to, um, to deal with. I, you know, it wasn't the churches that are coming to the convention. Um, the, it's actually the executive committee that is bringing it to the, you know, the appeal, and the churches are now, um, that are in question are actually appealing the decision that's there. Um, so they're the ones, and, and that can happen regardless of whether we have an amendment or not. 
And so, you know, in this whole situation, I'm, you're kind of like, all right, um, grievous offense. That, that, that's another language that is similar, I would say, in intent to um, closely identified with. And I think we, we need that. There, this is a moment I really sense, and I'm not trying to play a scripture or a God card, um, but um, in Acts 15, when the, er, that early church was threatening and they were, 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 were pulling, um, they slowed it down. And they said, we need to take some time to think about this. What is a faithful compromise and what is unfaithful compromise? And they you know, chose people that were full of the Holy Spirit and they came together and they found something that was good for the Holy Spirit and for them. And so if you want to call that in Acts 15 a task force, then call it a task force. But it came out and it preserved that there's a value of the unity of the church. And, and we're talking about a lot of people that are in this that really do want to be faithful to Scripture. They believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. They believe in their complementarianism. And we want to say we want to walk forward together in unity as Baptists, missionally united and not doctrinally compromised. So let's take our time and not just react emotionally to this. I'm going to move on, Pat. I'm going to. <laughs> I'm going to. I'm going to move past the amendment and the language of Article Three. It, it feels like we've we've kicked that horse a few times. Unless anybody wants to say a final word. Yeah, on let me that. just say I love JD, and I think this is how we should be having these conversations. Yeah. I think we are together on the gospel, and I think we're together on a lot more secondary issues included, and we're definitely together for the mission. JD and I can can disagree about an amendment, still love each other, and still work together for for you know for the Great Commission. And I think as Southern Baptists, we need to roll back the 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 vitriolic language and sit down in rooms and get together with brothers and sisters and do what Danny was saying, and uh, you know get with some of these pastors and try to understand one another because I do think that there is a, a nomenclature issue. I, I have always said that. I said this to, to Nate a few years ago. I think one of the greatest problems facing Southern Baptists is not doctrinal, but it's pragmatism. And I think our pragmatism has caught up with us in that we have been loose with language, loose with titles. And I think most every pastor, if we sat down together, worked through some things, would say, yeah, you know, I inherited this. Let's think through this. Let's get a process to, to correct this. But if people are unwilling to do that, nope, we're, this is what we're going to do, then you have to have a different system. Yeah. Look, I think all of us are for what's going to get us through to agree. Um, the, the reason that I wanted to uh, approach Mike and, and uh, ask him if he would be open to stating it positively is precisely because what you said in the beginning, women are not the problem. The problem is that men have not stepped up in a lot of a lot of issues in the church, and we have even been loose with qualifications of who can be a pastor. All we have to do is look at all the pastoral failures in evangelicalism and in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so I think we have a lot of work to do to to help us understand what does it actually mean to be a qualified male to be a pastor. But the other thing is uh, we want to communicate to women that they have great value, and um, we want to we want to model that in our churches. And uh, we want to teach on that in our churches, and we want to encourage one another toward that end. So I mean, I, I'm the father of five daughters. I love women. <laughs> and um, I, I, we, we raise our women to be strong, courageous, you know, Ruth-type, uh, Sarah-type women, daughters of Sarah. Um, but there's an order. There's a created order that in God's providence and revelation, he wants it to be reflected in the church. 
And so I think we're all trying to do the same thing. We have to have some grace with each other. Processes might be different, but I think we're all after the same thing. And we have to understand that even though we might disagree on how we're going to get to that, we need to understand that we're really together on this. And so that's my aim in, in proposing the amendment, not to, to create a level. Now we're going to go after these, but to just simply say, we already know what the Baptist faith and message says about who can be pastor is qualified by scripture. Just like Al, you said last year from the floor, we know what a pastor is. My aim in the amendment is to give the messengers an opportunity to affirm that publicly and say, yes, this is what we believe. Now let's move on and get and work together. Let's move on to a less complicated issue. And that's the SBC presidential election this year. Um, we're in a, Jared, I'm coming to you. Um, so we're in an unprecedented year. Uh, since really the conservative resurgence, we have a, a candidate running against an incumbent uh, other than in 2011 when Wiley Drake nominated himself. Uh, this is unprecedented since the CR. And even more than the, the stage lost to Wiley Drake and, in an election? Yeah. I did, 2006. And you know who nominated you? Danny Aiken. It was right a nomination yeah. speech that yeah. killed it for me. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no comment. Okay, so... So it's an unprecedented year, and even maybe more than that, I don't know if we've ever had a candidate run who gave no money to the uh, to the CP the year before. So it's unprecedented. We have a candidate running against an incumbent. Uh, Jarrett, how are you processing everything as pertains to the SBC uh, presidential election? Well, it's kind of personal for me just because I know Dr. Mueller didn't want a task force. I didn't want to be on the task force, but... Uh, I didn't say I didn't want any task force. I got you. I got you. Uh, Dr. Uh, Barber called and asked me to serve on the sex abuse task force. And uh, we, we can talk about that if we have time. But uh, the reason I'm supporting uh, Bart is because of his work towards sex abuse reform. Uh, the other candidate that's running uh, has said he wants to abolish the task force. And I just think we have so much work to do, so much good to do. Uh, that I am uh, going to throw my hat in for Bart. I'm actually going to be nominating him and can't wait to do so. So uh, I, I am for Bart Barber, and I don't think he's done anything uh, to not deserve a second year as president. Great. That was, that was breaking news at the Baptist 21 panel that you're going to be nominating uh, Bart Barber. Anybody else want to weigh in on just kind of the unprecedented nature of uh, what's happening with um, the, the presidential election? I'll say this, and just like Dr. Mother, we will support uh, and love and work with whoever uh, the convention elects as president. Um, I do agree. I think Bart has served us well. Uh, I don't think he's done anything that would cause me to think that he was not entitled uh, to a second term. I know it's not in our bylaws and constitution, but it's been very customary for a very long time. And so because of that, uh, I will support him. But if Mike Stone is elected or someone else that we don't know about, uh, I will love them, pray for them and support them as well. No other comments. We were much more energized by Article 3 than that uh, that conversation. I, I, I think it would be, um, you know, we, we'd kind of be remiss if we moved past something that's been monumental since the last time we met as Southern Baptist. Adam, I come to you for this question. Since the last time we met, there's been the upholding of Dobbs, the overturn of Roe v. Wade, that significant, um, you know, action that 
that this convention has talked about for decades. And so we were really, really thankful. But as Jed kind of talked about at the beginning, that the fight for this is not over. It's actually, in some senses, intensified. Uh, you were at the Stand for Life Leadership Summit last year. Just how, how was your time at that, but also in just moving forward this conversation of like this, really the battle is coming to our our local communities in a, in a more pervasive way than ever. Some of the legislation from the Biden administration and others is really trying to make things much more available. So just talk, I want to ask several on the panel about this, but just how was the time at Stand for Life and how are you thinking through how to continue this fight moving forward? Well, I was very encouraged by the uh, summit and uh, just excited to see how many different pro-life groups are out there uh, advocating for life uh, and for its sanctity from uh, conception to natural death. And so I felt really energized and encouraged by that. I think we all recognize that when the fight's in your backyard, it's much more intense. And for all of us in the various states, like I'm in North Carolina, uh, by God's good grace, we just passed uh, a, it's a law that uh, restricted uh, significantly uh, when abortion is allowed. Still not where I want it to be, but we took a giant leap in the right direction. Uh, so do I now and, and JD sit back and say, well, our job's done? No, uh, our job is in the throes of it. I think it will only get more intense. I, I don't want to use the word violent, but I would not be an inappropriate. I'm not saying people are going to come out uh, and, and physically assault one another, but it is going to have an intensity that if you're not ready for the fight, uh, it's going to run you over. And we just need to recognize that it's worth it uh, because lives are at stake and because it's now in our backyard, all of us are going to have to be vigilant. We're going to have to be in it for the long term. One of the things, again, we also want to do is to get tired and throw in the towel. I can't keep up uh, uh, fighting this battle. Uh, yes, you can. Mm. Uh, put on your big boy and big girl pants and get your tail out there and keep throwing and throwing and throwing at that issue until we get it where it needs to be. Sure. Dr. Mueller, obviously you, you talk to this issue a good bit. I, I want you to kind of weigh in on just how, how you see things a year later after uh, Roe v, the overturn of Roe v. Wade, but also uh, maybe pivot to a second answer to this. This has become an issue that is kind of uh, just an emblematic of a larger issue, which is even on something like pro-life now, we seem divided in camp. So how should we think through just how even that issue that we seem to all agree, at least on the end of, there's divisiveness in that, but also just a year later from Roe v. Wade, how you're processing everything? And Nate, I appreciate the question. I, I want to ask a personal privilege. I, I didn't, didn't follow exactly the flow of how this was going. I, I want to ask if, if I could go back to the previous question for just a moment. Sure. In, in order to say, look, I'm a conservative. I'm not just a conservative on the issues. I'm a conservative by temperament and principle. I, that means I'm an institutionalist. Hmm. That means I think like, first of all, beginning with the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only institution promised eschatological existence and glorification. <laughs> Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We also believe in other institutions. If you believe in them, then as a conservative, you have only a couple of options. One of them is you, you, you build it and you protect it, and where it needs correcting, you correct it. But you do not subvert the very institution you're saying you wish to protect. I think on many SBC issues, frankly, it's 
it's very sad we're reduced to two candidates and two issues, hmm. uh, two sets. Sometimes we aren't even very easily understood. I will simply say this. It's an institutional norm, not for irrelevant reasons, that an incumbent president is generally reelected to office. Hmm. It requires a breaking of a norm to suggest that that should not take place. That requires an egregious, and back to the same kind of language, uh, fault that would that would lead to basically a repudiation of a leader for the second, the second term. Uh, I can just say I have been in situations where Bart, Bart Barber has acted incredibly nobly and with great integrity and with great resolve to see the right thing done. I'm absolutely obligated. Uh, I, as an SPC entity head, I don't want to be a partisan. I simply say I'm an institutionalist without apology. Mm. This is an institutional norm I think is important. Yep. All right. Uh, on the, the, uh, it's good. Thank it's good. Well, there it is <laughs> on, on the, uh, the Dobbs issue. I think here, here's where we are surprised two giant surprises. And I'm incredibly active in the pro-life movement. And I will tell you that if people say they're not surprised with these two things, they are being dishonest. Big surprise. Number one, the left moved so quickly into an absolutist position Conservative pro-lifers are not at this point united in an absolutist position in terms of short-term strategy. We are, I pray, united in an absolutist position in terms of long-term goal. The left is actually coalesced far more than the right on this. The pro-abortion side now says no restrictions, abortion under any circumstances, no restriction whatsoever, no rationale need be given for any reason or for no reason paid for by the American taxpayer and and facilitated by every level of government, national, state, and county. So that is new. It's not new that people are making that argument. It is new that, for instance, uh, the last two nominees of the Democratic Party have held to that publicly, because that's far to the left of where their own party was just a matter of a few uh, cycles ago. So all that's to say, the terrain's changed, and we need to understand that. And so there's an impulse on the part of the American public to try to say, well, where's the middle ground on this? The middle ground is in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, there is no middle ground on this, because we now face an absolutist uh, argument on one side and an absolutist argument on the other side. We're at a categorical level, ontological level. Either that fertilized human egg is now a human person or it is not with all the consequences that attend to that thereafter. <laughs> and uh, unless human dignity and human life exists from the moment of fertilization until the moment of natural death, then every human life is contingent. And there are those who want to make it even more so. <laughs> the second big surprise, the second big surprise is that the American people are so confused by the pro-life issue that any pollster can ask any question and get any intended or expected result out of it you want. But we can't argue with the fact that in states that include Kansas and my own home state of Kentucky, voters have failed miserably to uphold clearly pro-life efforts, which is just a, the second big surprise is a lot of people who had been saying they were pro-life turn out not either to know what that means or not to understand how to translate that into any kind of effective binding policy. So let me just remind you one last thing as a conservative. A conservative understanding of the law is that the law exists in several functions. One is to teach, one of them is to restrain evil. The other one is to limit human 
behavior to lead to more good behavior and less bad behavior by clear statements of law. And that is where we have a huge uphill battle right now with the American people. Yep. Others want to weigh in just kind of where we are a year from now on the you know, upholding of Dobbs and the overturn of Roe v. Wade. I always think about this in reference to the early church and, you know, they were, we tend to think everything's new now about how no longer are we being an evangelical is no longer a moral positive. It's not even a moral neutral to identify as evangelical as a moral negative. And um, that was actually true in the first couple centuries too. You know, they were looked at as atheists and cannibals and all these, you know, open sex as you know, they accused them of because of just, it was slander. Um, and they met that. Um, not just by correcting the rumors, they actually meant it primarily by subverting the narrative of, you know, being excessive in their poverty relief. You know, it's those famous words of, and when the Emperor Julian, these godless Galileans take care not only of their, their own poor, but ours as well. I think there's a real opportunity. It's a Kairos moment for the church to step into that gap. And I would assume I'm saying something right now to people who have already done this, but if you haven't stood in front of your church and not only um, celebrated the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which I think we should, it should be accompanied by church. It's time for us to step up and step into that gap. And your list of people that are signing up for foster families and adoption and orphan care ought to be out the roof. Um, yeah. So I don't, I also don't want to be cavalier with that. That's a difficult assignment. Uh, you don't just like, Hey, you know, I feel motivated. Let me do it. I mean, it's, you, you know, that's a, a process too. That's got to go through. It's a lot of work. But I just think it's a moment for us to step into something and say one thing we do want to be known for is that we take care of the widowless, I mean, the widow and the orphan, and uh, she and he are safe here uh, in this place. I, I want to pivot from there to the task force. So you guys will have a report this, this afternoon towards the end of the session this afternoon. You spent the last year on it. Can you kind of talk to us about your experience, the changing on um, the kind of using guideposts, and then just the really the complicated nature of what's going on with that fourth category of credibly accused and just give some insight from the task force. Sure. Thanks, Nate. Uh, I would encourage you be in the room at five o'clock when our chairman, Marshall Blaylock, gives his report. Uh, that is something that you need to hear. Everybody needs to be uh, in the room to listen to that. He's going to ask uh, for another year uh, for the task force to continue to serve because what we have realized in, in this past year is that there is a lot of work to do, and we are just beginning. Uh, so we're, we're not going to, you know, come out of this convention uh, and the, all of the answers, uh, we have all the answers to all of the questions. This is going to be a process, and it's going to take work with our state conventions, which is already happening, with our local associations, which is happening. Uh, when Bart called me to be on the, the task force, I, I did not. Uh, want to uh, do that. I said, Bart, would you do this? And, uh, and he said, well, I, I kind of would. And, and so my story is one of, uh, I was sexually abused as an eight-year-old uh, boy, never told a soul till I was 19. And if it wasn't for my local church coming alongside me and, and loving me and being there beside me and my family in that time, I don't know what we would have done. And so I had a local church that did it right. And so in that, uh, I thought, you know what, God, if this is why you allowed this situation in my life for me to serve on a task force like this and be a part of a reform in a denomination that I love, then I'm going to do it. And uh, when we first met back in September, Labor Day of September, uh, every person uh, in the room wanted to go away from guideposts. Can we do anything other than guideposts? 
post solutions because of the tweet that they sent out, because uh, of just the uh, uh, animosity that uh, it accrued. And so we uh, talked to 20 different firms that handled something like this. But the scope of the Southern Baptist Convention to find a qualified licensed firm that can handle the scope is not an easy thing to do. And so uh, Guidepost uh, uh, hired a Southern Baptist grad to lead uh, their faith-based initiative called Faith-Based Solutions. And so when we were going with Guideposts, we were really going with Faith-Based Solutions to do this. And so when we made that announcement, and uh, we made the announcement, and uh, we, we had, we, look, it was positive and negative. I don't want to sit there and say we, we had all negative. Uh, what you see online sometimes, that's all it is. We had a lot of people saying, we support you and embrace this, but, but we decided as a task force, okay, we want to listen because what we implement as a task force is, is only good if the convention of churches uses it. If they don't use it because they don't like the way we came to it, it makes no sense whatsoever. So we decided instead of everything being under one roof with faith-based solutions, i.e. guidepost under their umbrella, then we would farm it out. And that's what we're doing, Nate. And, uh, you know, category one, two, and three, pretty easy to do. Marshall will give you some announcements about those. Category four is going to take a little bit of time, and that's why I would encourage you Uh, uh, There was a motion made to totally decimate Category 4 and and do away with it. I would encourage you not to vote that way, uh, but instead vote to give the task force another year so that we can continue working toward uh, these reforms that are so badly needed in our convention. So you're saying, uh, in your opinion, the task force is not liberal or woke? Correct. <laughs> Correct. Want to give Not even a little bit. Yeah, I want to give you the opportunity to say that. Yeah. Yes. Give you the so, but I want to ask one follow up on that. So, with category four or number four in the credibly accused category, that is a complicated issue. You obviously made mention of that. How, how do we, what are some things you are thinking about moving forward so that it, there are not lawsuits all yes. over the place? Again, we don't want to say that's not complicated. So, it, no, yeah. it's way complicated. That's why we haven't rolled it out yet, yeah. and that's why we need more time. And what you need to know about, um, uh, th- there's a lot of misrepresentation, and that's one of the reasons I'm so for Bar Barber, because it's been misrepresented by the other side, which I don't think is, is fair or right. Um, uh, the, the, to be uh, the, the credibly accused is category four. That's what we're talking about here, credibly accused. What does that mean? The, the fear and what's been thrown around is that you can just accuse anybody of anything and their name goes on the website. That is absolutely false. It cannot happen. Matter of fact, to be credibly accused, the sexual abuse crime, uh, if, if you're being accused of something, number one, it has to be a, a, a crime where you can be criminally charged or found civilly liable in the jurisdiction that that crime happened in. So different states have different laws. And so what may be a crime in Texas may not be a law in North Carolina. And so if something happened that was a crime in Texas, but it happened in North Carolina, that person's name cannot go on the credibly accused list. Not only that, but what we're asking and what we're working toward, and here's why we need more time, is because we are trying to get a list of firms together because we're going to ask churches when something comes up. And we need Category 4. This is the, this is the, the world that we live in as pastors. 1, 2, and 3 is easy. 
But what happens is, is when the credibly accused slip through the cracks and they, and they just go over to another church and we might call a buddy that they know they're going over there and go, oh, don't you, you don't want to hire that, but we don't have a way to say it publicly. We need credibly accused uh, to protect our churches. And at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. Uh, but what we're asking is if something comes up that's credibly accused, we're asking a, a licensed, qualified firm to do an outside investigation. Okay, they do that outside investigation. The person being accused has an opportunity to respond to what they're being accused of. If they are accused, credibly accused, it goes to a legal review team by Christian lawyers that gets to call balls and strikes. Did that firm do this investigation right? And then there is an appeal process where if that person that's credibly accused wants to appeal, he goes to a different uh, part of that legal review firm that didn't even judge on the first one and he gets to make his case before then. If all of those three checks go off and that person is found credibly accused by a preponderance of evidence that is uh, uh, the measures of a, of a uh, civilly uh, liable courtroom, if all of those are checked, they go on the credibly accused list. You cannot just make an accusation, call someone, and say, put them on the list. And let me just say why this is important, and then I'm done. Uh, we started this hotline, and again, I didn't know any of this coming into this, okay? We started this hotline. Do you realize there's been over 600 phone calls to the hotline about sexual abuse cases? And we, our, our team is, uh, not our team, but Southern Baptist Convention, Credentials Committee, they, they've waded through all of them. There are nearly 300 open cases right now uh, that they're going to have to look at. And so our Credentials Committee, who are volunteers, are, and, and this goes back to what we talked about, who's calling the balls and the strikes, who's going to search out these churches, whatever it may be. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do. And I just tell you, for the Sex Abuse Task Force team, I would... I uh, beg you to be in the room at 5 o'clock and give us another year as we're continuing to work through these things. Very, very helpful, Jared. Thank you for serving on that. I know that's not a... Uh, <laughs> these are hard issues. I know many would not want to serve on that. I, I, will, I will leave it open if anybody wants to talk to that briefly. We're, guys, we're going to be... It doesn't start back till 2. We will be out of here in the next... Seven to ten minutes. We're going to have maybe two more questions, so we'll get you out on time. Anybody want to address anything that was said there, or y'all? Jared was fairly thorough, but let, let's go from here. Juan, I'm going to come to you briefly, but then I may come to the two uh, institutional guys in just a second. You both teach some at Southwestern. You give money to the cooperative program and Southern Baptist causes. All the all the information we're hearing out of Southwestern just you know misspending all this kind of thing both as a prof and as a pastor, how are you thinking through all that? And just this idea right now of, of you know, transparency, accountability, and lack of trust with entities, this can't be a good time for that to be the, the case and to see this happening. So how are you thinking through uh, Southwestern? Yeah, um, the first thought is, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention is a macrocosm of the local churches. And I think uh, the way that I'm thinking about it is, if it were our local church, we have members meetings where we give financial reports and members are allowed to ask questions. And one of the things that I share with our elders, we never want it to appear like we're pulling the wool over our members' eyes. You know, we, we never want it to appear like we're hiding something. And so I think, again, I don't know accounting. I don't know, you know, laws and all that stuff. But anything that we can do as Southern Baptists, whether it's an institution you know, whether it's a ministry, whatever it is, um, we should be above reproach in all our practices, whatever they are. 
And, and I think part of what that means is that we should be able to uh, openly show how we're stewarding the resources that Southern Baptists give us. I, I have no opinion or understanding of what the best processes are for that. I, I'm sure these brothers do because they've been in there. I was a student at Southern Seminary. You know, I have implicit trust with Dr. Moeller. He's always, you know, uh, been above reproach and, and, and explained everything. It, it was a joy being uh, under his leadership there. Um, but I think we should have confidence in our institutions. By the same token, um, let me just warn us, if, if our mode of operation is always suspicion, that is completely and utterly unhealthy. Mm. And so uh, if, if we're always looking for something, we're always going to find things. And uh, we need to understand that, um, you know, uh, when I just knowing what I know about your dad, you know, I have implicit trust in Danny as well, just in personal interactions. Uh, you know, I taught a couple of classes in the Spanish program at Southeastern. And so um, I, I think we need to look to men like these who have modeled that well, uh, learn from them, hear from them. But I think, Southern Baptists deserve to have confidence in their institutions. Dad, uh, things you would say to that, just, you know, things you might do to try to build trust in, in this kind of area when it comes to Southeastern spending and all that. I mean, you don't even drink coffee, so that one thing is out the window. But um, <laughs> talk, 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 to about, talk about how you try to help build trust and how the institution is accountable financially. Well, my first year, uh, Nathan, at Southeastern now, amazingly 20 years ago, there were accusations brought against um, the previous administration about how they'd handled some financial matters. I actually went to Al for counsel, and out of that, uh, I went to our auditors, and I asked them to do a forensic audit. cost us $100,000. And I said to them, uh, you go where the evidence leads. If we've done something wrong, I want to know about it. If we've done something illegal, I want to know about it. They came back and said, uh, well, honestly, you've kind of run this school over the last several years like a mom and pop store. You're too big to do that anymore. Here are about 25 recommendations that we have. We did not find anything criminal, anything uh, untoward, but you do have some business practices that you could implement that would help you do better. And we implemented every one of those. And we've had nothing but the highest um, uh, level of uh, audit approval in those 20 years. And honestly, even back then, I even took a further step because someone went to uh, the Attorney General of North Carolina and said we had also acted criminally. So I hired an outside law firm, spent another $100,000. He did the same exact um, investigation, basically, as our auditors. Again, a clean report. So after that, just playfully, I've always said to our trustees, listen, guys, uh, you're never going to be surprised. You're going to know everything because if I go down, you're going with me. <laughs> and, of course, I'm being playful with that, but I just want them to be fully aware of everything we do. I don't want them to ever be surprised. And that's just something, again, that and, and I learned a lot of it from, from Al because I worked with him for eight years. I saw how he worked with our board of trustees, how transparent he was, how above board he was with everything. Nobody at Southern Seminary would ever come back as a trustee and say, wow, I didn't know about that. I didn't see that coming. And so it's just a culture you build. And I agree a thousand percent with Juan. That ought to be true for all of our agencies and entities. If you send us money, 
we have every responsibility to earn your trust. Go ahead, JD. And local churches. Yeah, right? absolutely. No I mean, difference. You know, we've just seen a slate of that happen in the local church too. And yep. I think of the words of late, the late David Pallison, the you know Christian counselor. Things that grow in a secret garden always grow mutant. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. And that applies even to the best of us. So just being able to say, a lot of people can see lots of things in my life, including my schedule, my spending, all of it. Dr. Miller, let me say, and and Al can add to it, I feel very confident about the leadership that is now in place at uh, Southwestern. And and Al can speak better to that, especially with David Dockery. But I know David and uh, OS to be uh, dear brothers, wonderful men of integrity. I have uh, great hope uh, for the future of my uh, sister seminary. Dr. Can, I, can, I, can I just add one more to that? Just to echo what Danny just said. Uh, I agree uh, with, with the election of Dr. Dockery and then, and then OS. I think it is incredibly helpful and encouraging. Uh, I'm a pastor. I don't have to teach at a seminary, but I have confidence in Dr. Dockery uh, enough to say, I'm going to be a part of the, the solution. Mm, and good. so... I have confidence in where we're going. It's good. Two-part assignment for you to end us. Uh, so talk to this question and then kind of do your normal for new people here. Do your normal, be in the room, be involved, and, and take us out with that uh, two-part answer. <laughs> and be fast. What we've just talked about. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I appreciate it greatly and uh, appreciate very much, uh, Danny, your, your comments. And uh, I want to come back on what you said and what Juan said. I have great confidence in David Dockery and... And uh, as president there, and O.S. Hawkins, his involvement's also just incredibly positive there. But they're having to go in after horrifying problems. And, and if you look at the graph that Southwestern's trustees released, it, it's horrifying in how many years of the last two decades, you know, spending was clearly out of control. And uh, so I want to say that I, I think we need to look at the fact there are structures that really do help. Accountability, again, I'm an institutionalist. Accountability often flows that way. Uh, At Southern, we do not just have a board of trustees. We have a financial board. The financial board's a part of our charter from 1859. It started with seven judicious men who may not be pastors. That's not to say pastors can't be judicious. (laughs) It is to say that businessmen were identified as the members of this board. They're elected by the Southern Baptist Convention. They're within the Committee on Nominations Report for Southerners when it says local trustees. Those are, they, they represent, and they're now men and women, and they do a phenomenal job. They have never failed to support. They look to me for leadership as chief executive officer and president. I think they're confident in that. They also have never failed to respond positively to everything I've asked them for. But they actually are a guardian with enormous active responsibility. They're right there locally. They can see everything. They meet often, and they give more of their time than any normal seminary trustee anywhere. But that means the president of Southern Seminary's name is on no loan application. It's on no checking account. I have no signature on any real estate transfer. It's enormously protective of the president of Southern Seminary that my spending authority, when I first went there for emergency, was $50,000. A few windstorms, and the trustees thought that was too many meetings. They raised my limit to $250,000, and I spent not $1 of it in the last 13 years that they did that. Mm. And it is because they're right there. You know, if there's, if there's any problem, we can call a meeting of the financial board, they come, and I don't mean any insult to pastors. 
I don't mean this. It's just, it's wonderful to have business people who are chosen on the basis of their business ability. And every single one of those, these boards has been phenomenally protective. And I don't want to say that I have any right to say as what every seminary trustee board should have. I'm just going to say it isn't enough to have a normal trustee process and a normal trustee finance committee in a world in which financial problems, even just in terms of market realities, can happen in a matter of days and weeks. You, you, you definitely need far more trustee involvement. And any president who's threatened by far more trustee involvement or any pastor who's threatened by lay people, lay, you know, yeah, elders who are heavily invested in helping you to run the organization and keep fiscal health and accountability. If you oppose that, you are endangering yourself. Mm. So I just want to say a word of encouragement. Something's clearly broken in our governance system or we wouldn't be having this discussion. Mm. So let's find out what works. Let's see what doesn't work and, and help encourage Southern Baptist to get to a good place. Good. Yeah. But as for you, I've been given the responsibility to give you a charge. <laughs> Keep the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, but no, seriously, this is an unusual convention meeting because there are no evening sessions. We are in grave danger as a convention in not having enough business to conduct the business that must be done before we leave New Orleans. So... It used to be that at this time I would say, look, here's some blocks of time you need to be particularly careful to be in the room. Tuesday afternoon, from when we walk out of here, walk straight into the hall and stay there until the closing gavel this evening because the most important issues that are going to come before the SBC this year in terms of decision are either going to happen then or the stage will be set then for how they will happen. So you have no free time. From the time we leave this, you know... Take a pit stop. That's the last one. <laughs> you know, you're in there until the gavel. And then tomorrow morning, because of the compression of time, we're going to be right into it. And I just want you to figure out, do a bit of math, okay? Just do a bit of quick math. Look at the teller's process. Look at how many ballot votes are going to happen this afternoon and understand that the business this afternoon will have to continue tomorrow morning. So you have been warned. We'll see you there. Three quick things. Thank the panelists. Pick up, pick up your trash and take it out with you. And there will be extra book bags up here. Please come grab them uh, and take them with you. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.